And, uh, you know, for too long, church has made the Holy Spirit an emotion or a feeling or a presence, you know. And uh, we've gotten away from, hey, he's a person. Uh, just like I want to get to know Chris, I, I need to get to know the Holy Spirit. I need to cultivate and, and develop a relationship there. And to really see the Holy Spirit work in my life, I need to get to know who he is. Um, a lot of people just want what they have. Uh, or just want what the Holy Spirit has to offer, but never really want to know who He is. Um, and how, do, how many of you know that you get the most out of a relationship and you get the most out of a person by getting to know who they are, not just getting attached to what they can offer you? And so, uh, you know, to get the most out of the Holy Spirit and to get away from just this power and this presence and a feeling, um, we need to get over into who He is. And so we saw that the Holy Spirit was there from the beginning. This wasn't a brand new thing. This didn't come with Jesus. Uh, and he said, hey, I'm going to show you something new. Uh, hey, look at what I can do. Uh, this didn't show up with the apostles in Acts chapter 2. We know about the, the infilling and the, the Holy Spirit coming upon their lives at that point. But this goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. This goes back to when God created man and he breathed into man the breath of life. And that was the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit was necessary. It wasn't an option wasn't an alternative thing. wasn't, uh, you know, God just said, let me just give him something a little extra. It was a requirement for man to achieve his purpose in the earth. And so Adam and Eve uh, had this Holy Spirit residing within them. And that's what allowed them to know and understand and hear God. Because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God. That was God living inside a man. Because where's God at? In heaven. Where's man at? In the earth. So we need something in between there. We need to go between that saying, hey, this is what God is saying. Hey, this is what God wants to do. Hey, this is what God would like to do. This is what God is thinking. And so that's why the Holy Spirit was there. Well, obviously, we know Adam and Eve sinned. And sin and God cannot coexist. So there became a separation. God has a dilemma now. He created man on the earth to fulfill his assignment that God has given him. But now man can't fulfill that because the Holy Spirit is no longer able to reside and live in man. God said in Genesis chapter 6, uh, right before he brought the flood on, and he said, my spirit can no longer strive with man. And that word strive actually means abide or reside in man. I can no longer have my spirit inside a man. I have to withdraw my spirit because sin has taken over. And so now man, for all these years, has been struggling on the earth and been giving in to another nature and another God. Remember that man lost their dominion and lost their authority and handed it over to the devil. So now man has been uh, giving his life over to the devil and making choices that are actually against God. So Jesus shows up. Remember we said we changed our thinking that Jesus didn't show up to get people to heaven. Jesus came to help you fulfill your assignment in the earth. Because remember, he told his disciples, just as I have been sent into the earth, now I'm sending you into the earth. Remember, Jesus was talking to God in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he said, I don't pray that you take them out of the earth. I pray that you keep them from the evil one. And so Jesus, when he got into a conversation with his disciples after he rose again, he told his disciples, uh, received the Holy Spirit, and he breathed on them. And that was when they received the Holy Spirit back into their life. Why did, he, why did they have to receive the Holy Spirit? Because their assignment that they were now about to walk out in the earth required the Holy Spirit. Look, every day in our everyday lives, the Holy Spirit is required for you to do what God wants you to do. Without the Holy Spirit, guess what? You do what you want to do. And remember, we've said before that when you're doing what you want to do, you're really only doing what the devil wants you to do. Because those are the two gods in the earth, the devil or God. And, you're, and a lot of people think, I'm doing what I want to do. I'm, you know, I'm independent. I'm free. I'm, I don't have to obey anybody. I don't have to submit to anybody. Guess what? You're submitting to something, and it's not God, and it's not even yourself. You're submitting to the enemy. So, man has now been in this conflict, this struggle, and that's what we're going to talk about. Tonight, we're going to talk about the great dilemma. The great dilemma. 
because now man has been in this constant struggle that there's a God that wants us to achieve a purpose in the earth. We know this. Otherwise, he would have just... I mean, has anyone ever asked why God didn't just take everybody to heaven after Adam and Eve sinned? I mean, why are we continuing to procreate on this earth and just... And if that's against God's will, I mean, if his will is just for, just to get everyone to heaven and forget about the earth and forget about what's there, then why, in the, why are we still here? Why are we still walking this thing out? Why is God still allowing people to be born? Why is, you know, we, we don't ask these questions. If the plan is to get us to heaven, then why aren't we there? If that's what Jesus came to do, that was 2,000 years ago. We just sitting around waiting for God to make up his mind. Do I want to take them to heaven? Do I want to leave them in the earth? No, this is where we need to be. And so the Holy Spirit is a requirement for that assignment. And so tonight we're going to talk about the great dilemma. Let's get into that. The great dilemma. Let's go to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. And um, we're really not going to go too far from here. We're actually going to do all of Romans chapter 7 and then a little bit into Romans chapter 8. And that's really where I'm going to stay. Uh, because Paul here, Paul is the writer of Romans. And Romans is one of the most awesome books in the Bible. Romans is where Paul really gets down, really gets on your level, really gets down to what this life is all about, what we came out of, and what we are now in. This is what Romans is all about. And it's an exciting book. And these chapters, chapter, uh, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, and chapter 8, 4 through 8, are just some exciting chapters. Because Paul just really breaks it down on, this is what you used to be. Now let me show you who you are. And how many of you know sometimes it, it helps you get to where you're going when you know what you've come out of? And you understand why you came out of something. Um, You know, a lot of us try to do so much to forget our past, but sometimes we just need to allow our past to help catapult us into something new, into something that's coming up. And um, so that's what Paul does here. And in Romans chapter 7, he's what you would call in this day and age getting real. He gets real here. And let's look at Romans chapter 7, verse 5. Romans chapter 7, verse 5. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. Now, one of the things that I pride myself in, um, I'm not a proud person, but one of the things that I believe I've been anointed to do, and I can be proud of the anointing because it ain't me, it's God, Uh, one of the things that I feel God has given me an ability to do is to take the word and break it down into something that's understandable and simplistic and applicable to our lives today. So let's look at this first verse. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. Now, first off, let's take that first sentence. Let's go back to five. For when we were in the flesh, what he's saying, first of all, he's talking to believers. Because notice he's talking past tense, when we were in the flesh. So he's talking to believers. And what he's saying is before you knew God, before God was in your life, before you came into Christianity, you were in the flesh. And the sinful passions were aroused by what? The law. Now, I thought the law was good. I thought the law was supposed to help us. He's telling us that sinful passions were aroused. That means you all of a sudden began to desire to do wrong because of the law, because of God's commands of what not to do and what to do. Here's what the law is. Very simple. Here's what the law is. There's So much, I mean, it's probably one of the most debatable subjects in the Bible among theologians is the law. I'm I'm not giving you slim fast 
message tonight. He ain't going to be able to drink this through his straw, so I'm going to go slow. Okay, we're going to do some chewing and meditating. Um, sinful passions which were aroused by the law. The law simply did this. This is what the law did in the Old Testament. It told you what you were supposed to do, and it told you what you were not supposed to do. Now remember, Adam and Eve were told not to eat of what tree? The tree of the knowledge of what? Good and evil. Did Adam and Eve know good? Sure did. Because remember, everything that God created, and then afterwards he said what? It is good. So Adam and Eve, they knew good. They knew what good was. They had good all around them. They didn't know evil. See, there are just some things we don't need to know. There are some things, you know, especially for people that always want to be in the know, there's some things that you're better off not knowing. How many parents in here wish that they could keep their kids from just finding out about some of the junk that's in the world? You know? You, you hear parents... Uh, you know, you hear parents saying stuff like, you know, they just got to learn on their own. They got to do it to learn it. Or, you know, they get out there. Man, if I could shield my son from half the junk that I had to go through, and there's even more junk now that I didn't have to go through, and I've only been out of high school 10 years. And now there's so much junk. Yeah, but 10 years. 10 years, and there's more junk that they're dealing with that I didn't even have to deal with in 10 years. And, uh, you know, I I mean, I was in children's ministry down in St. Augustine, and there was stuff that I was dealing with with 9, 10, and 11-year-olds that if I told you right now, you would fall out of your chair. I don't know. It It floored me when I got the phone call. I was absolutely floored. I couldn't believe that I was even having to deal with this. I was not prepared. I was not prepared as a children's pastor. I mean, I was supposed to be teaching people how to, you know, do the hokey pokey and, uh, you know, learn how to sound out words and, and say, you know, short verses like Jesus wept, not this garbage. The enemy is starting early, and we got a problem, you know, taking a little bit of time with our kids to teach them the word. Okay. Anyways, so... What happened here is that we have sinful passions that are aroused from knowledge. This is called temptation. Temptation is simply the desire to do what you what has been revealed. This is why God didn't want Adam and Eve to know evil. Here's why. Because they would want to do it. Very simple. He didn't want them to eat of the tree. See, it wasn't about eating fruit. We all make it so simple. I would have never eaten the fruit. It wasn't about eating the fruit. It was about what the fruit brought with it. And the fruit brought the knowledge of something that God never intended for man to even comprehend or know about. So now, evil, knowing evil, did what? Remember what the Word said? Eve looked at the fruit and she found it desirable desirable there was something that the fruit had that it brought with it that Eve desired and wanted there was a passion and arousal that took place I gotta have what that has I gotta have what that'll give me so here's the problem with the law Jesus or God brings the law into play here's what you do And here's what you don't do. But here's the problem. Now that I know about what not to do, I want to do it. That's what this verse is saying. The law brought with it sinful passions that now work in our members, members meaning our body, our flesh, to bear fruit. So now I know do not murder. Now within me, I want to murder. And then it's at work in my members. Then I murder. Now I know that's a drastic one, but do not lie. Do not steal. Do not cheat. Do not covet. 
do not commit adultery. I mean, we can go on down the line. The, the Ten Commandments that we know, and the law is way more complex. So the problem with the law is that it identifies right and wrong. But here's what the law doesn't do. The law did not give man the ability to actually do right. It actually stirred up within itself the desire to go after what was wrong. Are we on the same page? Do we understand? Verse 6. Verse 6. I told you we'll go slow. But now we have been delivered from the law. That's a funny statement. So you're telling me I've been delivered from what God has been telling me not to do and what to do? It's not what he's saying. Having died to what we were held by, so that we, would sh- so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Here's your answer. Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. Here's where Paul explains what I just said. I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. So he's saying right there, the law revealed to me, do not covet. Now I know about coveting and what coveting is. And now, although I know it's wrong, now all of a sudden I have a desire to covet. Okay? Very simple. That's what the law did. But does that make the law sin? Does it make the law bad? Certainly not. Okay? The law still is holy. Because if you keep the law, then the law is good. Okay? If you obey what the law says to do, then you're good. You're good. The law is good. Verse 8. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, that means now sin is taking opportunity in my life because I've received the commandment not to do it and now I want to do it, produced in me a manner, all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Okay. So I said all this to say this. Paul is identifying now that you have been given a new spirit and a new nature. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So we have a new spirit inside of us. So here's where our dilemma, our struggle. Remember we said this in Kingdom Mind Renewal, that every single person, every person on this planet, old, young, uh, baby, you know, on the way out, uh, no matter what country you live in, no matter what culture you're of, no matter what nation you're of, every single person has this struggle, doing right versus doing wrong. But now we've been given an ability within us to actually do right. See, what the law couldn't do was actually give you the ability to do right. So as much as you want to do right and as much as you want to live according to what God says to do, you couldn't do it. Nobody in the, nobody in the Bible. There were righteous people, but there weren't any saved people. And righteous just meant that they, there, were, there were people that chose to live according to God's law. And, but that didn't make them righteous on the inside. That just made their actions righteous. But God's not about actions. That's what the Pharisees and the Sadducees were about, and that's why Jesus had such a hard time with them, because he's saying, well, it ain't about what you're doing on the outside. And that's why we're talking about a life in the Spirit, because there's a lot of people that are doing right on the outside, but their heart's all jacked up. Heart's all messed up. Got improper motives, or they are really doing stuff behind closed doors that nobody knows about. Uh, all kinds of terrible stuff. And God's dealing with their, Jesus is dealing with their heart, and the Pharisees and Sadducees have a hard time because on the outside, they look better than anybody. They look good. I mean, Jesus called them whitewashed tombs, and on the outside, you look great. But on the inside, you're a tomb. You, you have dead things in you. Okay? So, let's go on down to Romans chapter 7. We're still in the same chapter. Verse 14. See, sin came as a result of temptation, of a desire 
knowledge breeds the desire to live out what you learn or what you know. What is revealed now all of a sudden brings with it a passion. Okay? So, Romans chapter 7, verse 14. Now, this is a passage you may have heard before. Um, A lot of pastors preach this. um, But I'm going to give you the answer. Because there are a lot of pastors, there are a lot of uh, religious, theologian, theological people that struggle with what we're about to read. And it's hard. But there are some things that we're going to be able to point out that are going to reveal what this passage is all about. Because we're about to see a man named Paul, uh, who was one of the uh, closest people to God in the entire Bible. Uh, Paul wrote two-thirds of the New Testament by himself. Two-thirds of what we have is the New Testament. Paul wrote it. He wrote these letters. He started churches. Uh, He did mission works. Uh, He was a leader of all these churches and would stay connected. He would go and plant a church, stay there for a few years, put someone over the church to come out and travel and do another one. Uh, This man went through probably the worst torture that anybody could ever imagine uh, over his lifetime. He was shipwrecked. I mean, you should read his resume. It's pretty good. He was shipwrecked. Uh, He was beaten. He was stoned. He was left for dead. He was in prison. Uh, Crazy stuff. Crazy stuff. And so we we view Paul up while we put him on this pedestal and, you know, he's such an awesome man, such a righteous man. He did all this stuff. And then we read this passage and you almost just want to skip over it because you're like, no, Paul, that's not Paul. Paul wouldn't do that. So let's read 7 verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal. Sold under sin. Now, we got to read this right. We got to read this right because things get lost when you don't actually hear them speaking. Okay? And God revealed this to me, and I believe this is what it's saying. A lot of us read that as He's speaking now. I am carnal. I am sold under sin. I don't believe that's how it's written. I believe He's saying, but I am carnal. Sold under sin. So you could write it this way. If I'm sold under sin, I am carnal. He's not saying, I am carnal. I am now carnal. Because we know that he had the ability to talk to a church in Corinthians that was carnal. And a carnal person has no business telling another person they're carnal. You've you got to remove the post out of your eye before you try to get someone else's speck. Okay? So he's saying... But I am carnal, sold under sin. If I'm sold under sin, if if my life is given to sin, then I'm carnal. Because I'm a spiritual person that's still doing worldly things. Remember last week we identified what a carnal person was. A carnal person is someone that responds just like the world would. So they hear bad news and they respond like the world. Uh, Somebody gets angry with them and they get angry back. Someone cusses them out and they cuss them out. Someone hits them and they hit them back. You respond just the way the world would. That's what a carnal person is. A carnal person is a saved person that still acts like the world. You can't be unsaved and be carnal. Then you're just a sinner. But see, when you get saved, you're no longer a sinner. You are now a believer in Christ. You are now a Christian. But you can still act like the world, and that makes you carnal. So let's go to verse 15. For what I am doing, I do not understand. What I will to do, that I do not practice. What I hate, that I do. I do what I will not to do. I agree with the law that it is good. How does how many of you can relate to this right here? What I want to do, I don't do. And what I do, I don't want to do. How many of you ever been there? Come on, we've all been there. I don't want to do what I'm doing right now, but I'm doing it anyways. I don't want to look at this, but I'm looking at it. I don't want to be here with this person right now, but I'm here with this person right now. I don't want to think these thoughts, but I'm thinking them. 
Come on, this is the struggle. This is the great dilemma. And so we've had people reading this passage thinking that Paul on a regular daily basis is struggling. Paul, the man that preached, the man that took stripes, the man that was stoned, the man that was starting all these churches, the man that was traveling all over the place and and going before governors and going before kings and going before all these royal people preaching the gospel, he's really struggling on the inside and saying, I don't do what I want to do and I do what I don't want to do. And this is not the case. We've got to look at this in the light. We've got to understand what this is. Because here's what a lot of pastors do. They read that and they say, see, Paul's just like me and you. We can all, we can all have our pity party. We can, all, we, can, we can live in the flesh every now and then because Paul did. But I'm not giving you that answer tonight. I will be held accountable for what I tell you tonight. And I don't want to stand before the throne room. I don't want to stand before God and say, but I read on the verse, and he says, but I gave you revelation. And I say, but that's too hard to tell people. I, you know, could you, Jesus, could you imagine? They could have left my church. <laughs> they could have stopped coming because I told them that they actually have control over what they do and what they don't do. So I'm not going to do that. I'm going to stand before God and say, yes, I gave them the full counsel of the word. And I believe it's going to bear fruit in your life. Amen? If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. Verse 17. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, here we go, I do not do. But the evil I don't want to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, if I do what I don't want to do, it is no longer who I who did it, but sin that dwells in me. So Paul, again, he's just labeling out there, we have those times where we do what we don't want to do. And then as soon as we do it, then we feel what? Condemned and we feel bad. And Man, I shouldn't have done that. Man, I want to put that away. Come on, he's getting real. Paul's getting real right here. Verse 21. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind. I mean, he's talking about a battle here. He's talking about a struggle. He's talking about a dilemma. He's talking about a a, a power struggle. Somebody, they've got these two forces within me that are fighting, literally going at each other, trying to take over what I do. And bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Let me tell you what he means by this body of death. There was a Roman torture. If someone killed somebody else, they would literally tie the dead body, the dead corpse, to the person that murdered him. Attach that body to him. And the gangrene and the stuff that was on the rotting dead body would go in and kill that body. This was a Roman torture device. They're the ones that came up with crucifixion. I mean, who in the world thinks about hanging someone up on two sticks until they pass out? Okay? This was the Romans. So he's saying, who will deliver me from this body? Who will deliver me from this dead body that is supposed to be dead but is now eating away at who I really am. Because remember, you are a spirit, possess a soul, live in a body. It's a three-part being. The, the flesh is now dead, but the flesh is still working if we don't put it under. And now it's rotting away the spirit within us. Okay? 
Your, your spirit on the inside needs to grow. Your spirit on the inside needs to eat. Your spirit on the inside needs to work out. Your spirit on the inside needs to get strong. And whatever you feed gets stronger. Whatever you don't feed gets weaker. Okay? So, Paul is revealing a life here. But here's what he's revealing. He's revealing a life of someone that only tries to live according to the law. Not someone filled with the Spirit. This is what we have to understand. This is the thing that people are leaving out. And they are using this as a scapegoat. They use this passage to justify their actions. They use this passage to say, Paul dealt with it, so I deal with it. Paul had these struggles, so I still have these struggles. Paul, Look, I'm not denying the struggle is there. But I'm about to give you the answer to where you can win. Everybody wants to be a winner. Everyone wants to be victorious. Nobody wants to lose. Nobody wants to come in second place. Everyone wants to defeat. And so now I'm going to give you the ability and show you how to defeat. This goes back to what I said at the beginning, that within every man has been given the power of decision-making. Look, as long as you have the power to make a choice and make a decision, you possess the power to change. Okay? Period. As long as you have the choice, you get the power to change it. That's exciting. As long as you have the choice of do I do this or do I do this, then you now possess the power. The, pos- the power of choice is the power to change. If I get to make the choice, if I'm forced into sin, then I can't change. That was the problem with the first 2,000 years. That was the problem with the Abrahamic uh, commands and, and the the commands that God gave to Moses and the commands and the the law was it only showed me what to do, but now, great. So now I know what to do and what not to do, but I'm stuck doing what I don't want to do. And so that's what Paul's talking about. That what I want to do, I don't do. Why? Because I don't have the power within me. That which I do want to do, or that what what I don't want to do, now I'm doing that. I don't want to watch that thing on TV but I'm sitting here watching it anyways. Why? Because there's a passion, there's an arousal, there's a desire. Those are strong words. But if they weren't that strong, it would be a lot easier to just say, eh, I'm not going to watch it. Change the channel. Flip it off. Right? I don't want to respond in hate to this person that just cussed me out, but there's a passion and a desire and arousal that's rising up within me to just tell them who they are. So this is what Paul is talking about. And he says, Oh, wretched man. That I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Verse 25. That's where most people stop. Paul is a wretched man. Look at verse 25. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And the question stops. Or it's not a, it's not a question. The, the, the sentence stops. He just gave you the answer. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God, Jesus Christ, my Lord. There's your answer. That's what he's doing. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Remember we said that if you want to get your life anywhere, if you want to do anything different with your life, what gets there first? Your mind. I think I've ingrained that. In your mind. I've ingrained that in your thinking. If I'm going to get you anywhere, we've got to first take care of it in our minds. Our mindset has to change. That, our, our mentality's got to change. You've got to see it the way the Bible sees it. You've got to see it and think about it the way God sees it and thinks about it. That's where the change takes place. And so he's saying, with the mind I serve the law. See, here's, here's the pattern. Let me show you. God designed man that the flesh would come under submission to the Spirit. We said this last week. When God created Adam and Eve in the garden, He put them there for His purpose. He didn't stick Adam and Eve there and say, okay, do whatever you want. Go do whatever, eat what you want, do what you want, say what you want, treat each other how you want. Uh, Adam, you know, if, if Eve does something to upset you, get mad at her. Uh, you know, you can hit her if you want. Do, it, do whatever you want. If, you, if that tree looks good to you, Eat it. That's not what God was doing. He put them there with 
his purpose and his intentions in mind. So God gave dominion and control to, the, to man. But man is a spirit. If, if I could do anything for you that would be the most profitable, it would be to get you to see who you really are on the inside, who you really are. Because this outside flesh is not who we really are. Right now, I'm not talking to Nikki and Cindy and Chuck and Damien. I'm talking to your spirit, man. That outside suit, that's just what's housing you and allowing you to be in the earth. See, this is what healing's all about. Let me go here real quick. This is why healing is so important. There's a big debate that God puts sickness on you or that God does these things to teach you or sometimes God takes you out of the earth. If God takes you out of the earth, how are you doing what he wants you to accomplish? God needed another angel in heaven. He's already created angels. He's already created angels. In fact, he has made you above the angels. Angels submit to you. If you say, I need finances, an angel has to go get the finances and bring it to you. That's what angels do. We don't submit to angels. Show me anywhere in the Bible where an angel gave a command to a person and they had to do it. Won't happen. The angels were given to man and given to God. And they are spiritual beings. They don't have the power of choice. Angels don't decide what they want to do. They're angels. They are forced to submit to God. Okay. How do we get there? I don't even know how we got there. <clears throat> you know. Healing. I was talking about healing. See, God gave power and control to man. Now, there's a spirit being inside of here. Get this, get this, get this. There's a spirit being inside of here. But this flesh is required. Guess what? If my flesh dies, where does my spirit go? Either heaven or hell. It does not remain in the earth. There are no spirits operating in the earth without a flesh suit. Not even evil spirits. Evil spirits is what you call demon possession. And they have to what? Possess a body. Flesh. We know a few of those. Satan in the garden. Satan in the garden had to come in the form of a snake. Now that's illegal. Because God set forth a law that only man is supposed to have this type of power. So a snake talking, that's not supposed to be. But even Satan couldn't just come in satanic form and visit somebody. The only way you will see Satan, the only way you'll see God, the only way you'll see angels is if you are given the ability to see into the spirit realm. And that happens. I mean, Elijah had that happen. Him and he had a servant and they were surrounded by the enemy. And Elijah's saying, yeah, whatever. He's got his feet propped up, arms behind his head. Yeah, we're all right. And his servant got a problem, freaking out. Uh, do you not see? Do you not see what's around us? And what does Elijah say? Lord, open his eyes and show him your work. So the servant's eyes open, not that his flesh eyes spiritual eyes allows him to see into the spirit realm and there's a whole mountain full of the Lord of hosts, a full mountain full of angels, a full mountain full of these mighty warriors for God and now his servants a, a little but see when you when you see into the spirit realm it takes away your ability to have faith. See it's much better to believe in God without having to see him than having to see him. Because now I'm operating in faith. If I see him, then, oh yeah, I've seen him before. Right? But faith praises God. It's impossible to please God without faith, is what Hebrews 11, 6 says. So you've got to have faith to see. So, healing. 
if your flesh is unable to carry out a task, it's not about you. It's about the spirit in you. See, if I die, guess what I'm not doing? Standing here before you preaching the word that God has called me to do. Period. If you lose your flesh suit, your spirit now is inoperable in the earth. So this is why this is why healing is so important. See, this is what this is what we've been talking about the kingdom. And I've been bringing the kingdom foundation. I said, everything now that I see in the word, I see it through a kingdom lens. See, before I thought healing was just because God wanted to be nice to you. But now the kingdom showed me something. Healing's not about me. It ain't about me feeling good. It ain't about me, you know, I got no more back pain. It ain't about me, my knee's all right. It ain't about me, you know, that I don't have that flu anymore. It ain't about me uh, getting rid of cancer so I can do fun things. And do what I want to do with my life. Healing is required, one, so you can be a witness of the kingdom. Because remember, you are representative of the king. So however you're doing in life represents the king. Because if you say, I serve God, I, I serve God, I serve God, and then people see, okay, well, what's your God doing about that? So now we've had to make up excuses. Well, you know, he's just trying to sh- teach me grace and mercy. False. Uh, why did, why did, why did uh, your grandmother die? Uh, you know, he needed another angel in the choir. False. What, what are we doing? We just don't want to come to the fact that, look, you know, I believe my king can do this for me, and I'm just, you know, I'm just building my faith. I believe God can do this for me. I believe my king is a good king, and he wants to heal me. He wants to see me whole. He wants to see me uh, not hobbling around. He wants me to be a good witness. That's the first reason. The second reason is so you can fulfill your assignment. If I'm at, if I'm at home sick, am I fulfilling an assignment? Who am I influencing? Who am I affecting? Who am I impacting? Period. I'm stuck in a bed, drinking NyQuil and blowing my nose. I have my own pity party. And then some people are literally trying to figure out, okay, God, what are you trying to teach me? He ain't trying to teach you nothing. He's trying to get you up out of the bed and exercise your faith so we can go on and do this thing. That's what healing is about. See, I look at healing completely different now. It's not about me. It's about I have to get my body in alignment. There's death and corruption and all this junk in the world now, but I'm in the world. Not Same thing with provision. Same thing with finances. Finances come through me. I mean, I've, always, I've confessed this for several years now, that millions of dollars will flow through my hands. I don't care about being a millionaire. I don't care about, about having it. But I want to be a funnel. I want to be able to have access to money without money having me. And God wants that provision to flow through me. God wants that provision to flow through this church. God wants to be able to, to, for us to do any type of outreach and reach any person in this city without having to go to the bank account and getting permission. Can we do that? That's not what God wants. God wants us to have overflow so when God says, go here, okay, I'll do it. When God says, go here, I can do it. And the limitation of finances and the limitation of provision, it's not about me. It's not about me getting the boat and getting the big house and and getting the fastest car and buying planes and all that stuff. I mean, you know, there are mega church pastors that gotten this rock star mentality that you have to have that. Look, unless God requires that for your assignment, I mean, I know some pastors that God requires a plane, period. Forget trying to, trying to get a flight on Delta and flying commercial and, and going through all that garbage. How about you having your own plane so you can get on that plane and go anywhere you need to when you need to do it? I mean, our vision of Anchor Faith Church starting in St. Augustine, coming up to Georgia, going to Puerto Rico, going to Nicaragua, going to India... It'd be nice just to get on a plane at the drop of a hat. Hey, Puerto Rico needs you to come and do this. All right, let's go. Let's send a team. Uh, You, 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 you. Pack your bags. We're going Saturday. 
That's a lot better than, okay, let's get online and let's buy a ticket and, and make sure we can all sit together and all this garbage. So there are assignments that require those things. But just to have it, just to have it. I mean, if there's something that I have and I were to push that on you, God wants me to have a motorcycle, so you need to have a motorcycle. That's just garbage stuff. But this is what the prosperity preachers are saying. I got a jet, so you need a jet. Why do you need a jet? You work five minutes from work. There ain't no reason why you need to get on and have your own plane. It's just weird stuff, man. It's about the kingdom. It's not about yourself. That's where the kingdom will change your mentality. That's why we did kingdom mind renewal. Let's get our minds renewed to, to the kingdom and what this Bible is all about and, and stop looking at everybody else. I said a few weeks ago that, you know, a lot of Christians, a lot of believers are living someone else's Bible. Belie- they believe in someone else's God. They've never actually gotten to know him for themselves. They've never actually gotten in the word for themselves. I want to develop and, and build up a church that gets to know God for themselves. Amen? All right, so we see this struggle between the flesh and the nature within us. Here's why the Holy Spirit's been given to you. Um, I, you know, we talked about the Holy Spirit last week, and we were talking about a life in the Spirit, and I said a life in the Spirit is not the Holy Spirit taking control of your body and making you do all kind of weird things and just screaming at the top of your lungs for no reason and running around buildings and making you fall down and making you roll around and laugh uncontrollably. These things happen, okay? But we have attached that to, oh, that's a spiritual person. Oh, yeah, God's all over them. There's times that I've gotten up and run around in church. Sure have. But you know why I did it? Because I was just so excited about what I just heard or what just happened in my life that my flesh could not literally contain what my spirit was, what was happening in my spirit. And so I just had to show out somehow. But when the time was right, see, the number one way you can know if someone's in the spirit or not is are they drawing attention to themselves or are they just going right in the flow of what's happening? That's where you can know. I've been in some worship services where you know, the presence of God is there. And then all of a sudden it gets quiet. You know, you have those loud ones, you know, people are jumping and excited. Man, it's good. There's freedom there. But then there's times when it just gets quiet. And you get that one person that wants to start dancing or one that one person that wants to jump up and start screaming. Okay, well, now our, our attention has been displaced. I'm no longer concerned with what God is doing and what the Holy Spirit is doing because now I'm thinking about this weird person in the corner that's bouncing off the wall and, and, and screaming at the top of her lungs. We, we've got we've to understand what a life in the Spirit is. And so that's why we're trying to identify a life in the Spirit. A life in the Spirit is this. Making the right choices. That's why the Holy Spirit has been placed in our lives. I wrote this down earlier when I was studying. The Holy Spirit has been placed in our life to do this. Three things. Helps you make choices that produce good character. Helps you make the choice to love. Helps you make the choice to be patient with people. Helps you make the choice to say the right thing, to hold your tongue. That's why the Holy Spirit's there. You know, the Holy Spirit talks to you. And again, we're not getting weird. How does he talk to you? Just on the inside. You know, I shouldn't, shouldn't say that. That's the Holy Spirit. I don't need to over-spiritualize this thing. There's a booming voice. The clouds came down. A shining light shone upon my face. And I couldn't see. He said, Lord. It's not the Holy Spirit, man. The Holy Spirit's within you just saying, I shouldn't do it. Remember last week we talked about red flags, throwing up those red flags. Should, should you be over there right now? It's a little late. Probably should go home. Holy Spirit. Okay? So one, he helps you make choices that produce good character. Two, he helps you make choices that will help you walk out God's will for your life. He will help you make the choices that will allow God's will in your life. Okay? Decisions like, should I go back to school? Decisions like, should I move? 
Decisions like, should I go to this church? Decisions like, should I take this job? That's the Holy Spirit. Not choices of what cereal should I eat in the morning. God ain't concerned with that. Cheerios or Fruity Pebbles? Pick one. <laughs> All right. Mix and throw them both in there, right? That, that's what Andrew does. Just throw them both in. Should I wear blue or should I wear red? He don't care. That's, that's just a little, you have the power to make that choice. But now the choices that change direction in our lives and allow God's will to take place in our lives, that's what he's there for. Should I marry this person? Should I not marry this person? Should I go to this school or should I go to that school? Should I send my kids to this school or send them to that? Should I put my kids in this daycare or should I put them in this? He's there to help you make those choices that allows you to be in God's will. And thirdly, he's there to help you make the choice to obey God's command. To just simply obey God's command. God gives commands. God's uh, entire Bible is laid out with commands. It's laid out with commands. You know, the most exciting verse, one of the most exciting verses in the Bible to me is Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. For now I know the plans that I have for you. You know what's so exciting is before he created us, he had a plan. How many of us go into stuff we don't even have a plan? How many of us went in to 2012 saying, I want to do this and I want to do this and I want to do this and then have no plan? No plan of eating right. No plan of, okay, this is how I'm going to prioritize my life and be better about scheduling things. No plan of, uh, this is how I'm going to get closer to God. But plan those things. So in December, when we're evaluating those things, I'm, 2012, I'm going to lose weight, okay? This is what I'm going to start eating. This is where I'm going to work out. This is what I'm going to start doing with my life. This is where I'm going to start walking and running or whatever. This is how I'm going to get closer to God. All right, I'm going to get my Bible reading plan. I'm going to get down with that. I'm going to uh, start getting up 30 minutes earlier so I can pray to God before I start my day. Have a plan. God had a plan. Okay? So those are the three things that the Holy Spirit is in our life. The life of the Spirit is to help you make these choices because our lives are choice-driven. Now, real quick, let's close with this. We just read Paul's great dilemma. You know, let me do this real quick. I want to read that passage in the Message Bible. It's not going to be on the screen, so just listen to what I have to say, but it really breaks it down, the whole dilemma passage. And um, it really breaks it down to our terminology. I'm not real big on translations. Um, I don't, the translation that I read out of myself is New King James, and I really... uh, I don't condone very many. If someone asks me, hey, what, what Bible should I get for regular daily reading? King James, New King James, and uh, New American Standards about it. Anything out the, outside of that becomes a resource. You can go to it and, and get bits and pieces, but some of them are off. Some of them leave stuff out altogether. I don't know what the translator was on when they got that one. But let's look at this in um, Romans chapter 7. And this is the great dilemma. Here we go. What I don't understand about myself is that I decide one way, but then I act another, doing things I absolutely despise. So if I can't be trusted to figure out what is best for myself and then do it, it becomes obvious that God's command is necessary. But I need something more. For if I know the law but still can't keep it, And if the power of sin within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions, I obviously need help. I realize that I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, and then I do it anyways. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me and gets the better of me Every time. It happens so regularly that it's predictable. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. Come on, is anyone relating to this so far? Yeah. 
Sin is there to trip me up. I truly delight in God's commands, but it's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in that delight. Parts of me covertly rebel, and just when I least expect it, they take charge. I've tried everything and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question? The answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and does. He acted to set things right in this life of contradictions where I want to serve God with all my heart and mind, but am pulled by the influence of sin to do something totally different. So how many of you can relate to that? We, we have this struggle. We have this dilemma. But I'm not going to leave you hanging tonight. We've got the answer. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. See, the Bible, when it was written, was not written in chapter and verse. You've got to remember that this is a letter. Paul has written this to the church in Rome. This is a letter. And he didn't put, okay, chapter 7, verse 1, verse 2, chapter 8, verse 1. It's one big letter. We've only put those numbers in there to help us find passages. Could you imagine if there were no chapter and verse in the Bible? How would you find anything? Turn to the book of Joshua. Okay, uh, here. Okay, go to chapter 16. Well, what's the first word? Okay, I mean, without the numbers, we can't look anything up. But that's the only reason why they're there is for reference. So Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is, therefore, now no condemnation to those who are what? In Christ Jesus. So right there, he just came out of this great dilemma. Oh, wretched man, I can't do this, and I want to do this, and I do this, but I don't want to do this. And then he goes on to say, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So he's talking to people who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now remember, we said the Holy Spirit does not come to condemn a believer. He's come to convict. Satan condemns. Satan makes you feel terrible and makes you and, and tells you that you are too good or uh, too bad and you can't get out of it. Satan brings condemnation. The Holy Spirit brings conviction. We've gotten those mixed up. But conviction says, hey, you shouldn't do this because this is who you really are. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life. Hey, now we're talking about a different law. Because we were talking about the law of God. And now he's getting specific saying, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Two different laws. How did we get over to two different laws? Verse 3. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. This is what he means. The law was incapable of actually changing your flesh. It just showed you what you should and shouldn't do. So it was weak, meaning that I showed, I'm telling you, don't cuss. But you, for your flesh, still wants to cuss. And there's nothing in you that can help change that. But what the law could not do, God did in sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So law could not make you righteous. Law could not give you the ability to do right or, or to do right from wrong. But Jesus did. Amen. That's why Paul at the end of chapter 7 was able to say, Thank God, through Christ Jesus, I can defeat this dilemma. I can defeat this problem. So what the law could not do, Jesus did. Verse 4. That the righteous requirement, requirement, that's what God requires, a qualification. The righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is the answer to verses 14 through 25. You have the Spirit living within you that has now made you righteous, has now qualified you 
that what the law could not do, you can now do. This is a life in the Spirit. Last week we said a life in the Spirit was living from the inside out. Why is it from the inside out? Because Paul was very clear that there's a part of me that wants to do it and there's a part of me that doesn't want to do it. Where's the part of me that wants to do it? In the inside. And to get that out, it requires the Holy Spirit working with it. Remember we said from the beginning that you're not alone. Jesus said, I'm going to leave. He actually said, it's better for me to leave. It's to your advantage. If I stick around here, you are the way you are. If I leave, the Holy Spirit, the Helper, will come and live in you. So now the Helper has come into man to help them live this way. So nobody in this room from now on should, should have the excuse, I just couldn't keep from doing it. Or I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't hold my tongue. I had to say it. I just couldn't keep from responding that way. I just had to do it. I just couldn't turn off the TV. I just had to sit and watch. You have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, helping you to do what the law could not do. So I'm not up here today, this evening, telling you this is what you should do and this is what you shouldn't do. I'm up here telling you that now what you should do and what you shouldn't do, you have the ability to live according to. The Holy Spirit within you has given you that new nature and now He's given you the ability to live according to the new nature. It's no good knowing right from wrong if you can do nothing but wrong. And that's what the entire Old Testament was about. A bunch of people that knew God's law but a bunch of people that had no ability to keep it. And now Paul shows up and says, yeah, you had that struggle. You had that dilemma. You want to do one thing, your flesh tries to get you to do another thing. And then he says in Romans chapter 8, and we've been reading out of Romans chapter 8, verse 5 talks about the mind given to the flesh is death, a mind given to the spirit is life and peace. I mean, we haven't talked about that. And the reason why I started there is because I wanted to show you how the two connect. Isn't that awesome how the word works? It didn't stop at chapter 7 and then a whole other train of thought in chapter 8. He just went right on into it. And you should take, you should take some time t- uh, tomorrow, Friday. Just pick up your Bible and just read Romans chapter 8. Just read it. The whole chapter. 30-something verses. It's a great chapter. It's probably, I, it's probably in my top three of just chapters out of the Bible. Just awesome stuff. Because it's talking about how you now have victory over this former life, this former way of thinking, this former way of doing. Come on, we got to be different. We, we want to have a life in the Spirit. And I'm not saying uh, go, going up to random people and prophesying over them and, and uh, uh, you know, just talking in tongues everywhere and, and someone asks you how you're doing, you got to tell them, you know, a big old long list of the blessings that God's doing in your life. I'm talking about just making the right decisions in day-to-day life. That's a life in the Spirit. Now, here's the exciting part. This is going to go into next week. I'm going to close right here. The requirement of the law was that you had to be righteous. Now, righteousness is a position that only God can put you in. You can't put, you can't put yourself in a righteous position because God says that it, it's through faith not by works that you're justified so there's nothing you could do on your own to make you right with God but here's the exciting part this is going to go into next week Jesus made you righteous past tense that should be exciting come on Jesus made you righteous Let me put it this way. Jesus' work is done in you. It's over. He went to the cross. He died. And he rose again. Remember what we said Jesus came for? To take sin out of man. 
to put the Holy Spirit in you. See, churches that preach the gospel of Jesus, when you receive Jesus, you're done. That's it. I've got Jesus. Now, Lord, take me home. Get me out of this wretched place. I don't want to be sick anymore. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. Right? But, man, when you preach the gospel of the kingdom, you realize that Jesus coming into your life was just the beginning. He called himself the door and the way. And he said, no one can come to the Father but by me. Which means that once you get me, you've come to the Father. Now, here's the exciting thing. God is up in heaven. Jesus is up in heaven. But the Holy Spirit is God in you. Let me put it this way. God is not still... This is what a lot of people think. God, get the bad out of me, God. Get the bad out. God, take it away. Guess what? He's done it. He's taken the bad. God is not in the business of getting the bad out of you. He's in the business of getting him in you. That is the gospel of the kingdom. I'm not preaching a message where God's trying to get me all cleansed and gone, all cleaned up and... You know, there are people that sit in corners and cry on walls and, and wail and moan and cry and, and are just in grief because, God, I'm just such a sinner. I'm just a terrible person. And he's saying, you don't know who you are. If you have asked me, if you have asked my son, if you have asked Jesus Christ to come into your life, if you make him the Lord of your life, believe he died on the cross, then he has cleansed you. Past tense. He has taken the sin out. Past tense. Now, I've put my Holy Spirit in you, and my Holy Spirit is to help you live out what Jesus made you. Jesus' work is finished. That's why he went to the cross, and right before he died, what did he say? It is finished. What's finished? My work is done. Man now has the ability to have sin taken out of him. So God is no longer in the business of trying to get all the junk out of you. The Holy Spirit is now in the business of getting you cleansed, getting cleaned up and working out the new stuff. Amen. That's what a life in the Spirit is all about. Life in the Spirit is, I'm just this lowly, it's not just that I'm just this lowly person and I got you know, I'm, I'm, un, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy. He made you worthy. He made you worthy. Past tense. Say, God made me worthy. Say, I am no longer a sinner. I am a believer saved by grace to do good works. Amen. Well, Father, we thank you.